0: We're here at Race Retro for an informal chat with John Watson. My name's Samarth Kanell. I'm a staff writer here at Motorsport, and we've got the very John Watson here with us. Hello, John.
1: Good morning. Actually, it's almost afternoon.
0: I know. It's amazing. You've had a really busy day being up on the live stage, Uh, and how was that?
1: Very good. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've noted, having been not before at Race Retro, is a lot of the people that came along, A, to listen to the, the interview with Simon Aaron, but also to Get autographs and books and so on signed. Is they are all generally of my generation, and it's notable that the generation that might follow Formula One today wouldn't have heard of 95 percent of the drivers of the certainly of the 70s, let alone drivers of the 80s. And I mean, other than maybe someone like Nicky Lauda, who's you know currently you know on the Mercedes-Benz team and is on television and has heard. But I mean, even people like James Hunt. Um, I was taken to the airport one time recently, and the driver was the daughter of the regular driver, and said, oh, you were in motor racing. What did you do? And I said, well, I did some Formula One racing and you know, 75, 76, and then won the British Grand Prix in 81. I said, well, what's your name? I said, John Watson. Well, never heard of you. Well, that, I can understand that, when you're much younger, of course, but I mean, one of my contemporaries was James Hunt. You must have heard of James Hunt. No, never heard of him. Who is he? But he was
0: given the Hollywood treatment. I mean, that really does surprise well, me. Well,
1: I, I think it's, it's the way that sport generally and Formula One in particular has evolved and, and with the, the, the growth in media, but television largely. And also, I suppose, possibly the thing is, I don't know how many people today look back at history and look back at motorsport history in particular because everything is so much the moment. What's happening today to some degree, maybe in the future. It's all about you know, the moment rather than the heritage. And I think the heritage of anything, and particularly Formula One and motorsport, is pretty important. And when I was a kid growing up, I knew everything about the drivers of the late 40s and the 50s because they were the people that I aspired to, be- to become. And therefore, I was fully aware of what they did and the teams they drove in. and races they may have won and certainly the, their career in general
0: you raced against some people some big names that surely we should know as well um you know in your first f2 race it was clay regazzoni joe Siffert, uh, jackie stewart the you know the likes of which again not everyone will know the names but i'm sure the people listening to this podcast and the reader's voice to sort will but let's talk about that race that was your first was that your first f2 race and that was at throtston
1: in 1969 A friend in Northern Ireland had bought the two Lotus 48s, the the fateful car that Jim Clark lost his life in. So the two remaining cars were bought by Jerry Kinane, who was a local racing personality. He was a big fan of Chapman and of Lotus in particular. So he bought the two Lotus 48s and entered them at Thruxton in the European Formula 2, the opening round, for another local driver from Northern Ireland, John Pollock, and for myself. And in the feature race itself, the main part of that weekend, something happened where I made a lot of very good progress, caught and overtook people that, that I would read about and assumed were legends. And it didn't seem to be anything more difficult than I was doing when I was racing back in Ireland. I mean, it was an
0: astonishing result. I think you started 20th on the grid and finished fifth. You were no stranger to coming back from the back of the grid to well, the front. Uh,
1: the race in Thruxton, actually, I didn't finish. I ended up in the in the bank, but the point, I think, was that I made progress. And it, we, ne- I never drove the car until I got to Thruxton. I'd never driven a car with aerodynamics of that nature, with wings, and uh, so it was all completely new. But I just adapted to it, and I found that the Lotus 48 was actually a very nice car to drive. It unfortunately got that, that tag of being a Not a competitive car, and of course, with the accident at Hockenheim in 1968 when Jim Clark lost his life. It tainted, I think, the car's reputation, but it actually was a very nice car to drive.
0: Uh, I mean, it wasn't just then that you kind of came from the back of the grid and and came to the front. There was a, well, you seemed to really like the USA. Uh, It was Detroit and Long Beach. Uh, Was that 1982, around then?
1: Long Beach was 83, uh, Detroit was 82. And I, mean, I don't know why uh, I've had success on those street tracks uh, because obviously every year through the 70s and into the early 80s, we'd go and race in Monte Carlo, which is the ultimate road circuit. Uh, the thing about the, the circuits in North America, they were what I would best describe as matrix layouts. So you had fundamentally a straight a 90 degree corner, a straight and 90 degree corner. Unlike Monte Carlo, or what I consider to be the best ever road circuit, street circuit in the world, unhesitatingly, is Montjuï Park in Barcelona. That was, it's still there, I mean, 99% of the circuit is still there, but I don't think it's used for competitive racing. So those were proper, proper road tracks, European road tracks, whereas the ones in North America were, as I say, principally of a matrix layout, so it was point and squirt and point and squirt. but for some reason I seem to make the adaptation to both of them, Detroit and Long Beach, and had great success.
0: Um, And your career wasn't all kind of that kind of glory. There there was also a bit, especially in the 70s, where you had massive, massive accidents. Uh, Rouen comes to mind, actually. Uh, I mean, there's a list of bones that you broke there. Take me through that accident and what actually happened there.
1: Well, I mean, remember, this is a period in motor racing where any accident normally resulted in some kind of injury. It was very unusual to have a big accident and not have some, you know, a fracture or a breakage of some sort of, whether it was a leg or an arm. But in Rouen in 1970, and at this point, uh, my family had put together a, a race package with a Formula 2 Brabham BT30, and I was following the European Formula 2 circuit around Europe. Came to Rouen, which is a a, a proper, proper road circuit, as opposed to the street tracks, let's say, of Monte Carlo or Montjuï Park. Turn one at uh, Rouen is a big corner, and the thing was to take it flat out. And within about three laps, I'd taken it flat out. And I just thought, what a fantastic road track Rouen is. And then, uh, whether it was the first or the second day, I'm not quite sure now. Coming up, basically, you go down one side of a valley. There's a hairpin bend at the bottom. You come back up the other side of a valley. The, The corners on the return leg are not quite so quick. So, I'd gone through those sequence of corners. Then there's another straight. Then you come into a long, long, easy flat right-hand corner, which took you onto what would be described loosely as the main straight, which was part of the autobahn or auto uh, auto route. And midway round the corner, all of a sudden, there's a bang from the rear of the car, and all of a sudden, at 140 miles an hour or whatever, the car's out of control, heading towards the barrier, the armco barrier hits the barrier one side, back across the road to the other side, and eventually the car came to a standstill, and most of the front of the chassis had been ripped off, and the first thing I realized was I looked down and my left arm looked considerably shorter than it should normally be. So the two bones in your forearm, the alma and the radius, had been snapped clean in the impact, and I had a, sort of an additional wrist in where my forearm should be. And likewise, my left leg was broken and the ankle got fractured. It was a bit of a wake-up call because I'd never had an accident up until that point in six years of motor racing. I'd never been hurt. And it was the realization that motorsport, actually, you know, you, it, it's great to be a participant or a competitor, but it was a dangerous period. And racing on circuits like Rouen it, it was a high-risk circuit, a big reward circuit, but a high-risk circuit. So that curtailed my racing in 1970.
0: Um, it happened again in 73, it was a race of champions. Uh, I think it was just a leg. I say just a leg, uh, another horrific accident. I mean, safety standards. Who, there were people campaigning at the time to to get these things better, after, especially after Jim Clark lost his life. But why was action being taken so slow? I mean. I, were you, were you guys not scared for your lives all that well, time?
1: Well, I, I think I mean the Browns Hatch accident was caused primarily by a throttle was it wasn't closing off cleanly, coming into Sterling's band, the, I overran the exit of the corner and it went onto the what was actually the, the grass verge and then, at a very shallow angle, hit the the barriers. It was a railway sleeper line barrier, but the BT Forty Two was just introduced. It was its first event, and. Uh, in effect, what happened is the foot box on the front of the car on impact rotated through 90 degrees and took my right leg and part of my left leg with it. Ended up with a double compound fracture of the right leg, but worst was actually I was trapped in the car. I couldn't get out because the steering rack, which was mounted inboard in the BT42, uh, was trapping my legs. And the marshals uh, who came to help me get out of the car weren't aware that uh, they were trying to cut through the steering rack but they were trying to cut through the hardened part of the steering rack and had gordon Murray been able to get there and, and you know guide the the, the the corner workers the marshals they'd have been able to get me out of the car much more quickly so that was unpleasant being stuck in the car for the best part of an hour after the accident with a compound an open compound fracture of the tib and fib
0: i mean it, it is amazing now we have the halo the head and necks uh Device oh, who the inventor actually passed yeah. away this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing device. E- even then, Mark Donahue lost his life in Austria, and you came into Team Penske at a pretty pivotal yeah. time.
1: Yeah, I mean that that, that was an accident. That um, the safety of every race track at that time, that you, have, you principally had your guardrail, but uh, catch fencing and catch fencing poles to support the guard the, the catch fence became sort of in v- vogue. And what happened to Mark was that, re- regrettably, uh, as he went off track and into the catch fencing, one of the poles struck him on the head, which ultimately led to his losing his life. Uh, and, and following that, then I was, able to, I was invited to take over the role that Mark had previously enjoyed at Penske for many years, and I became the Penske Formula One driver.
0: What was it like driving for the captain himself? We have just done a, a Royal Automobile Club talk show with Roger Penske and it was eye-opening. But for you, what are your well, I, memories? I was
1: there that evening. I went to the evening event. You did? So, yeah. saw Roger and caught up. I mean, Roger's no different now. And you're going back 43 years uh, to 1976. And his vitality, his enthusiasm, his awareness, his alertness uh, is just, Unchanged. I mean, he is a, a, one of the most remarkable uh, people I've ever met, whether inside motorsport or not. And uh, in fact, uh, I one time saw him, I think about three years ago, and said, "Roger, why don't you run for presidency of the United States of America?" And I think he's the greatest president America's never had.
0: Really? I mean, he is. It strikes me he is always on a plane. He's so yeah. business-minded. It, it is amazing. It was his birthday the other day as well, and he got on a plane at 5 a.m., came to London, and then straight up, he went to Europe the next yeah. day.
1: Well, he, the, the function in London was on um, the Thursday evening, and it finished around about 10.30. And Roger was due to then get up at 3 a.m. The, on the Friday morning to get to whichever airport. Is, he's, he, he flies a Gulfstream jet, corporate jet, uh, to fly to Germany for a business meeting then to fly on to Holland for another meeting. That's Roger, I mean, his life is structured um, and it's very, very carefully and precisely structured. So everything happens as it ought to happen. And I mean, the amount of time that he spends traveling, he goes to virtually every event where his team's competing, be it NASCAR or IndyCar. But he said the other evening, I thought it was very funny, he said, well, somebody asked the question about the amount of time you're away from home, and he said, well, I say to my wife, Kathy, uh, just like me going playing a game of golf or doing a bit of fishing. If that's how he equates what he does in motor racing. It's just a, it's his weekend pleasure. It's, it's getting away from all the pressures and the responsibilities of his day job, which is running the Penske Empire. So he loves to go to a race. He loves to be involved. He often is, and I don't know if still is. He would be the driver. Uh, he would be the contact between the driver, often Elio Castro Neves and now I'm not sure whether it's Will Poole or not, Will Power, Uh, and that's what he does. He just, and he's good at it. And the whole thing of America, uh, there's a lot of strategy involved, and when you stop the, the yellow flags or whatever they may have, safety car interventions, that's what he does, and he's good at it. But also, the other thing is, he's got great humility. And it's a sort of, it's an egalitarian team. So when Roger comes in the garage in the morning, He's not coming in and people are buying and scraping. He's coming in as a member of the team. And if he happens to see something in the garage floor which he thinks should be removed, he doesn't say, well, who's responsible for that? Get them to clean it up. He'll pick up a broom and a pan and he'll clean it up. I
0: mean, he's a real inspiration. And it's Absolutely. a shame that Penske didn't continue to uh, compete in Formula One. You did, however um you lost Heinz Hofer uh, in 77 yeah uh, tell me your memories of, of Heinz Hofer. well
1: Heinz I liked Heinz a great deal I think he was one of the finest people I've ever worked with in Formula One and we had a, a, a great friendship and I think one of the things also that Heinz the qualities that he had was you know sometimes racing drivers are not the strongest at different points you know emotionally or however and they need a bit of a hand. I mean, you've only recently seen Jackie Stewart saying, drivers should have, uh, a tr- a, not a physical trainer, but maybe a, somebody who can give them advice and guidance when it's needed, in a way which is not being destructive or not being critical. And Heinz was able to do that, and he, he recognized my strengths and qualities, but he also recognized if I was maybe a little unsure or lacking in confidence in a particular area, one of the best people I've known as a friend, but one of the best people I've ever worked with professionally, and his loss is just something I'll never forget. I mean,
0: you lost lost a lot of people, and it's something that I, sitting here, forgive me for this, but I have been in an era where we haven't lost too many racing drivers. At that time, the grief must have been overwhelming. How did people just get on with it and and was it a different attitude that people had or were you Was there a different sort of camaraderie
1: that got people out of it? Well, I think first of all there was camaraderie and I think that within the paddock there was a greater sense of Friendship and and sincerity than there might be today but today's a very commercial world But at the time that I was competing and my contemporaries were competing We believed that we had the safest Formula One cars. We believed that we had the safest circuit safety. We believed that we had the best medical support and backup. It's only on reflection that you think, there's an M29 McLaren here today at the exhibition. And a number of people have said, I can't believe how far forward you sat in those cars. And your feet were probably marginally ahead of the center line of the axle in the front of the car. Now, today's, Formula One car drivers sitting, you know, the feet maybe a foot behind that center line of front axle. So there's a great deal more integrity in the design and in the construction of the chassis. It's most unusual. Uh, It's tragic when Jules Bianchi lost his life, but I've seen some horrendous accidents, and drivers just are able to step out of the car and walk away. They're a bit shaken, maybe a bit stirred, but they're fundamentally they're uninjured. It it is amazing. I mean.
0: another thing just jumping kind of topics here is that you competed against nikki lauda or competed with, with nikki lauda yes, now and against what strikes me here is that he came from a completely different background i mean the man had you know silver spoons and and, and all this now did you ever feel a massive disadvantage compared to lauda because he had the backing
1: not at all i mean I, I was, it was nikki's birthday uh yesterday turned seventeen. We all have sent our little congratulations on a video to the, the, the Lyder family. So hopefully Nikki will have had a, a few laughs. Had to be careful what we said because there's a lot of stuff that went under the table that you wouldn't want to put into the public domain. You know what it's like when racing drivers get a little bit out of control. <laughs> anyway, I mean, Nicky rocked up for the first time, I think it was in 1971 that I became aware of him uh, when we were racing Formula 2, Mallory Park, I think it was and he had signed a deal along with about half the paddock to drive in a march. And uh, Nicky was, I thought—who's well, this guy, never really who had done some sports car racing and didn't know a lot and didn't think a lot about it. But what was evident with Nicky very quickly was that not only was a very, very capable and a, a fast racing driver, he was an intelligent man, and he had a very good sense of understanding what a car does and even more importantly, in communicating that to the team. So there were, there were a number of drivers in the March family. I mean, Ronnie Peterson was the, the number one driver in the March team, and Ronnie won, went on to win the 1971 Formula Two championship. But Nicky gradually, gradually, gradually buried himself in the team, and on the maybe more on the engineering side, because his feedback was so accurate and so precise that engineers would gravitate maybe more to the louder side of the pits than to any of the other March drivers at that time. I mean,
0: even now, it's quite important to get the engineers on side. Uh, We perhaps saw it with uh, Hamilton and Rosberg, uh, back when Rosberg won the championship. So, I mean, that that trait seems to have carried over in F1. I mean, one of the things in your career that always strikes me is uh, you may well have lost out to Nicky Lauda in drive for Brabham and McLaren. I mean, what went on there... Well,
1: when Nicky joined uh, Brabham in 1978 at the German Grand Prix the previous year, Bernie said, come over here, come over here, quick. What would you say to me if I said Nicky was going to join Brabham in 1978? And I said, Bernie, I've got no problems. I'd take on anybody you want to bring into the team. All I would ask of you is that you ensure that we get consistent and equal treatment. And Bernie said, yeah, 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 that's, that's a given, that's a given. But, but the strength, or one of the strengths that Nicky has, is he is a very astute and intelligent man, and he's a very good operator for Nicky Lauder. And when he joined Brabham in 78, he won his second world championship at the end of 77. He had a, a, a then a personal sponsor in the form of Parmalat, an Italian, uh, basically cheese and dairy produce uh, producer, And Nicky had this as a personal sponsor, but then he brought Parmalat to Brabham as the team sponsor, the title sponsor. So it gave Nicky a significant advantage in terms of power within the team and with Bernie. And I mean, I I, I spoke with Bernie, well, about a year ago, and we're talking about that particular season. And Bernie said, look, he pointed to his head, you know, a metaphor for Nicky's yeah. cap. That was the deal, Bernie was a pragmatist. He'd got backing from Parmalat, he had Nicky as a two-time world champion and he had me. Bernie was gonna go where the money was, not least of all because Nicky is a two-time world champion and it brought something to Brabham that previously had never been there and Nicky is an outstanding driver what Nicky was good at doing and it it happened in Monaco in 1978 in qualifying coming to the last sort of 10 minutes or so and we each had four sets of wheels and tires for qualifying I'd gone out and done three runs and I was second quickest to Carlos Reutemann and Nicky was third or fourth I'm not quite sure came in five minutes to go let's put the last set of wheels and tires on the tracks empty I think I can get pole position and the mechanics went Uh, uh, no, you've had all yours, you've had all yours. I said, no, I've had my, I only had three sets. Where's my fourth set? And they were, nikki has got them. I got out of the car, you think like, you think I'd been ignited and went nuts. And what had happened was that Nikki had done his fourth run. He reckoned he had been blocked or whatever by uh, another car on that lap. Came in, Bernie dived into the cockpit and Nikki said, And I can't use the expletives. (laughs) If I had one more set of wheels and tires, I I can guarantee you I'll get pulled. And Bernie saw my four wheels and tires sitting there, and he turned to the guy and said, "Whose are those? Whose are those?" And they said, "That's John's final set." No. Bernie said, "Put them on largest car." So I got screwed. (laughs) But that was that was the power uh, and the persuasiveness that Nikki had. But also Bernie. I mean, I was in the front row of the grid. I'd have been bumped to the second row of the grid. But Nicky, and it's just it's just his strength of personality and character. And I, I didn't blame Nicky for it. I just said, you know, thanks, Bernie. Thank you. But that's what he does. And that's how he works. And that's why he's been the success he's been. He's a very linear thinking process. Totally selfish. But, you know, I like the guy... I like the guy a lot. We have had so much fun together. I call him a good friend. And you know, when he then came to McLaren, I was slightly more alerted because he was the first proper teammate I'd had in Formula One, and I, I learned a little bit. I'm not the quickest of learners, but I learned a little bit. And then he came to McLaren, and it was a slightly different scenario because he was coming back out of retirement. And he would try the same kind of scenario, using his success and, and, you might say, his notoriety. The way to beat someone like Nicky, uh, I realized, was not to beat him on his strengths, but to look to areas to see where he may be more vulnerable. And there are areas where he was more vulnerable, and I haven't got time to go into those in detail, but one of them was, for example, in, in Zandvoort in 82. On the race morning, it was a particularly warm, morning. We had the warm-up. I went out my regular tire set up, did five laps or whatever, came in and said to Teddy Mayer, left front's giving up. Teddy then pointed to the rack of tires and said to the guys, see those tires there, put the left side of those that set on John's left side. I said, what, Teddy, what are those tires? <laughs> mumble mumble. Anyway, dragged it out of them. The history of those that particular compound. I said, Teddy, there is no bleep way I'm going to bleep those bleep tyres on my bleep car. <laughs> so he he, prev- he prevailed, and after about two minutes of this conversation, I said, All right, put those bleep things on. Went out, first lap out. It felt a little bit because these were imbalanced compounds. Now, it right. felt a little bit slightly and. But after the first lap, second lap, it wasn't bad. Third lap was getting better, fourth lap, I thought these things are not, these are good. Came into the pits and said, Teddy, as long as the ambient stays high, that's the way to go. The session finished and we're standing around in the garage. Nikki says, oh, what do you do? Oh, oh, because he'd obviously seen the times. I said, I tell you what, this is exactly what I did. And this is the effect I got from it. And if I was you, I would do exactly the same as I'm doing. And he stood there, and he, uh, mm, mm, mm. And he said, uh, no. I said, you're bleep, bleep, nuts. <laughs> I said, I'm going to come past you after about five laps. You're never going to see where I've gone. You will, I promise you I will beat you today hands down. You're, why will you not? Why, tell me why you won't do it and I dragged it out of him, and it was quite simple. He hadn't tried it before he would have set off in the Grand Prix. I had tried it, I'd got the knowledge. I I never lied to a teammate, I never lied to Nicky of all people. So he knew what I was saying was completely honest and straightforward, but he couldn't go against a habit of a lifetime. And that is a big, big part of what Nicky was as a racing driver. And it's a part of him as a pilot, and it's a part of him probably in every aspect of his life. He is very, very disciplined in what he does and the approach and the, the, the execution of what he does. And I realized that what I'd done, I'd sort of psyched him out a little bit, and I'd gained the upper hand And he sort of realized it, but even in spite, he couldn't bring himself to do what he knew he he should have done. Yes, bring it on.
0: It's those little victories between teammates. Well,
1: that's how you beat a teammate. You don't beat them on the circuit all the time. You can beat them off the circuit. And I think on that occasion, I beat him off the circuit. And also, in terms of... of, of We had a slightly different approach to car setup. I like a, a Formula One car that essentially... Uh, You drive off the rear wheel rather than off the front wheel. I mean, current Formula One cars, it's all front end. I don't like a front end car. I like a car that you drive in the rear wheel. It worked for my style of driving. And I think in particular, it worked for me as a racer because it gave me more flexibility in in the context of being able to go slightly off track and not be restricted to a very narrow uh, line into a corner. So it worked for me, and at in Zandvoort, I was able to pass. Sorry, as older. I was able to pass people, as I had to do, not necessarily in the ideal context. But my car was sufficiently uh, flexible that it allowed me to do that.
0: Astonishing, John. It is a privilege for you to share your memories with us. Um, I promised that I wouldn't keep you more than 25 minutes, and I've broken my promise. But no that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, John. And I hope, I hope you enjoy the rest of Race Retro. Thanks, Sam. Cheers.